Lord, I want to thank you so much for the Gospel of John and what it is you want to teach us. And Lord, I do pray that we would take to heart what it is that uh, John wants us to understand, what you want to understand by recruiting somebody that was a son of thunder that would want to call fire down and destroy a whole group of people, and yet he's kind of known as the disciple of love as we read through his stuff. And I just want to thank you for that. And I just pray that you would bless this time, redeem every second. Don't let this go late, but Lord, also don't let it be so quick that we can't grab the stuff we're supposed to grab in this. So Lord, I commit this to you, and I pray you would do a radical work in this. In Jesus' name, speak to each of us, Lord. And may we all fall in love with you tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. The writer five times calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now that would sound like bragging, except when we get to these different words for love, agape, you know, phileho, you know, storge, which is a familial love, eros, which is an erotic or selfish love, if you will. Uh, if we see agape for what it is, a commitment of selflessness, it's hard to say that that's a bragging statement. Like, I'm the, I'm the disciple that Jesus really had to be selfless with. And now John, by the way, doesn't have a problem with, with, uh, with playing out the ego card because three different times when he talks about the race to the tomb, he gets there first and wants to make sure you know that he got there before Peter. On three, three times in one way or another, he'll state that. And there seems to be a rivalry between John and Peter. They were both fishermen in the same sea. It seems like they, and what we read, by the way, in Mark is, they were business partners. So these weren't guys that didn't know each other. These four could grown up together. And it's sort of a Sean and Guster kind of thing. It's like these are, they're just friends from birth, so to speak. But we do read that there is this relationship between John and Jesus. He is a prolific. He not only writes the Gospel of John, but he also writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Please, if we're going to go through the scriptures, know that there is a John and there is a 1st John. Uh, and so there's a first John, second John, third John, and he also writes Revelation. To be honest, it's arguable when he wrote the first, second, and third John. Uh, first John is the first book I ever actually memorized, not only in English but in Greek as well. But then the John and Revelation appear to be books that he wrote on the Isle of Patmos. The only apostle of the twelve that actually seems to have actually experienced the martyrdom of an old life. Uh, in other words, he's the only one that wasn't actually murdered for his faith. Just got him around for quite a while. And I think part of what we read at the end of the Gospel of John makes a lot of sense with that. Um, we read, by the way, a, a sort of a telltale sign, not in the Gospel of John, but in the other Gospels. They talk about when Jesus called those particular fishermen. And there were two guys casting and cleaning nets. Uh, and then there were two guys, well, then when we read about John, by the way, uh, and his brother James, that they were uh, mending their nets. And you see that John is much more of a mender. Uh, Peter, you see much more like a net caster. Because he's the kind of guy that's always pulling the people in. But John's always the one that's kind of mending things in this uh, In this case. He's called, according to Mark 3.17, Boanerges, sons of thunder with his brother. Uh, more than likely that is his character, and not that mom was thunder, because his dad was clearly Zebedee. Uh, with that in mind as well, the one that's kind of a key note in this is something you could easily read past in John 18.15. We have, you know... One particular phrase often in a gospel unlocks an entire story. For instance, Mark, how he unlocked that Jesus didn't just walk into the temple, freak out, turn into the Hulk, and start killing people, uh, but that it was a calculated event. Is that what you're asking? 
keep, I'll try to keep you both. I don't have to yell. <laughs> sure. Uh, and so we have these little verses that unlock the whole story. In the story of Peter's denial, we know that he's in the courtyard. But what we don't realize until we get to the Gospel of John is Peter would not even have gotten into the courtyard if it was not for John. And what we read in John 18.15 is that that disciple, speaking of John, speaking of himself, was known to the high priest. Now, many actually believe he was related. Now, it's hard to prove that. We don't know what tribe he was from or any of that particular stuff. We do know he was Jewish, it uh, appears to be. Uh, it appears to be, uh, as often assumed, he was in the beginning the other disciple who followed Jesus from the beginning with Andrew when they asked, where are you staying in chapter 1? Again, arguable, it doesn't say. But we do know that he has some form of relationship with the high priest. And that tells me something. He has an awful lot of inside information. I would expect him to know the name of the high priest's servant whose ear Peter had cut off. Matter of fact, because there seems to be a bit of a rivalry between Peter and John, I would expect John to make sure you knew it was Peter. I would expect John to make sure you knew the, the situation better than any. And of course, John doesn't have a problem telling you that. Uh, but because of that, this whole thing, to be honest, loving John from the Greek approach, because his recipients, we see, um, they appear to be Greek. And there's a couple of reasons for it. One is, John is constantly translating terms. A lot of the terms I would expect, rabbi or rabboni, teacher. Well, you know, if you're not Hebrew, you probably wouldn't expect that. But Messiah, he had to translate Messiah as Christ. Christos is the Greek word. So we assume whoever his audience is, are, that they have some form of Greek influence. Many believe that John was writing to actually thwart the stronghold that the Gnostics had stepped up and taken his place. The Gnostics were a cult. Uh, they were before Jesus, but then became a Christian cult just as much. They already had the mindset, and they just tried to add Jesus to the mix. People do that. And the concept of it, and I don't want to develop it too much because there's so much to cover that's so beautiful, but in the simplest sense, they believed in two things, that all that you could touch and feel was evil, and all that you could not touch and feel, you couldn't see, was holy. And you can see how, if you don't know your doctrine, how easily you can get danced into believing or accepting or agreeing with them on these things. So, because, in essence, that's kind of true, but it all depends on what you emphasize. So there were two basic camps. It was which side you emphasized. On one side, if you emphasize that everything was evil that you could see, touch, and hear, or experience uh, physically... Well, then clearly, you know, in regards to a, you know, an obviously a tangible sense, well, then clearly that had to be beaten into submission. And you have the group that are called the Stoics, and there are people like Marcus Aurelius. And the idea of that was a group of people who said, we can't have emotion, we really can't be, I mean, everything just has to be put under our control. Uh, and they were, the, the extremes of that would be people called self-flagellists. Self-flagellists are people who would walk around with these little whips and they'd beat themselves in the back every time they thought they had an impure thought. Or, boy, I, you know, anyways, you can imagine. So there is that group of people that emphasize that everything you could see was evil. On the other side of it, everything that you couldn't was eternal and holy. There were people like Epicurus. Maybe you've heard the term Epicurean today. Epicurean or Epicurus was a philosopher who basically said, well... 
if everything that's basically like the spirit is going to be holy anyway, if it's kind of the universalist, we're all going to heaven thing, well, then what difference does it make what you do now? And he was the one who would say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, carpe diem, seize the day, party your brains out, because the physical part's going to be evil whether you like it or not. Well, needless to say, John does go after that. And when I was young in my faith and I started reading to John, I looked for the Greek influence. And I was busy trying to find these things that John was kind of approaching it because I'm kind of philosophical by mindset. But then when I backed off and went, you know, wait a minute, I really just want to read this to see what it says without just trying to find something. I was struck with how enormously Jewish this book really is. And I'll point that out here in a moment as we kind of walk through it. So John does make clear why he wrote this in John 20:30, when he says, "Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name." John says, "I really want if I can get what I want out of this book, you will believe Jesus is the Christ, and by doing so, you'll have life in His name." Two very key things. Now. The, the focus, remember how we talk about there is a theme and a focus. The king on the hill, the, the servant you know, <coughs> and the multitudes, or the man at the table. For this, we'll really see the Son of God, or God, at the feast. Not a feast, but again, the feast. And John is constantly bringing us to the Passover. Because if you will, that was the thing, when I just tried to look at it objectively, that stood out so profoundly, I couldn't help but start to go, well, wait a minute, what would it look like if I actually saw this as one big Passover feast? And the whole thing erupted on me. Now, for that sake, just so you know this, the term, the feast, will be used, by the way, more times in this book, this gospel, than all of the others combined, to give you an idea. The term for the Son of God, for instance, begotten, exclusive to this book. The term born again, exclusive to this book. The term the lamb, because again, we're focusing on the Passover, so I started looking. The term the lamb is exclusive to two books in the New Testament. The Gospel of John. Does anyone want to guess what the other book that says the lamb? Revelation. And who wrote that? It's like John is taken with this concept. Um, The life, exclusive to this book. Everlasting life, exclusive to this book. The term the Father, because if he's the Son of God, the Father has to be a key theme. Let me give you an idea. The Father, definite article, the Father is mentioned twice in Gospel of Matthew. It's mentioned four times in Mark. It is mentioned three times in Luke. But in John, it is mentioned 61 times. You kind of get the idea there's a little disproportion in that. It's a big issue. The term Jews. As a matter of fact, of the Jews, for instance, except for one phrase, and that is king of the Jews, which of course is Jesus' title at his execution, other than that, of the Jews is exclusive to John. The term Jews itself is five times in Matthew, six times in Mark, five times in Luke, and 66 times in John. Now, what he tells us is, God came back to take back his feast. 
Because the feast that had become a testimony, or was supposed to be a testimony of the Lamb of God, will instead be a feast of the Jews instead. It had become a feast of men by this point. And that becomes the problem. Uh, glorify, by the way, uh, more, almost, <coughs> almost twice as many as the others combined. One of the ones that I really love, by the way, is the term love or loved. When you think about all of the different things, king, servant, man, and God, I love the fact that the one that has it the most is God. Matter of fact, one and a half times more than the other ones combined the term love or loved. And of course, the most familiar verse in all of scripture comes out of that term or comes out of that concept. God so loved the world. The term the light, one and a half times more than the other gospels combined. The term believe, because that's what John wants, to remind you. Eight times in Matthew, 15 in Mark, 11 in Luke, but in John, 85 times. Well, I should tell you something. No. Eternal life, by the way, more than the other three combined. Uh, presents Jesus. And if I look at it, so I started asking myself, what would it be like if Jesus really was being presented? To, since he keeps taking me back to the Passover, what do I know about the Passover? And how does that play into this? And I'll be honest, the first time I did this in my own personal understanding, this wasn't to teach it. I did it in my own study. When I had been to Israel a bunch of times, we were already having the Passover. And again, you reminded that next week we have Acts, and then we have Passover. So here we get to have that. Uh, when I started to realize what takes place to prepare for a Passover properly, the whole thing got really silly cool to me. Now, there is a particular book that people are given that have to do a Passover called a Haggadah. Haggadah, in essence, is sort of the DIY Passover for dummies is kind of the idea. These are the things you would expect. And I started to look at that, and I started to realize all of the stages for... Passover, from the preparation to what takes place during the celebration, all of those things happen in a specific order. Now, I do want to make this clear as we go through our chapters, because they will all follow. In essence, what I'm going to give you is the Haggadah of John, if that makes sense. Uh, John, as an eyewitness of all of these events, never told us he was going to write in a chronological order. Note that. If John doesn't say that, he doesn't necessarily have to do it in a chronological order. What if John didn't do it in a chronological order, but John did it more in a thematic order? I'm suggesting this, not obviously saying this is gospel truth. The reason I say that is, one event particularly becomes a real troublesome issue, and that is Jesus cleansing the temple. We all know from the other three gospels that Jesus cleansed the temple during that final week. As a matter of fact, on Palm Sunday, well, actually on Monday, he does that. But in the Gospel of John, it takes place in chapter 2. That seems a little strange, unless I was looking at it more from a theme. So there are some, well, how do you deal with that? Well, the natural way to do it is, well, then Jesus must have done it twice. Or... The Bible's wrong. Because John never said, well, this is what he did the first part of his ministry. But if John puts it in that, so, so stick with me for a moment. We'll let, um, I'm assuming that's Dennis in. Notice, by the way, I'm going to have you repeat a lot of Hebrew words here. 
Simple words, by the way. Well, simple. Don't worry about getting them wrong. You're only being recorded, so give them to me nice and loud because no one's going to recognize your voice anyway. Do you remember the first thing? Hey, Dennis. Do you remember the first thing Jesus is called in the Gospel of John by a witness? John the Baptist calls him something. The Lamb of God. Now, I'd like you to consider that when we think about the Passover. Because the Passover is all about there were two things where it was going to be one or the other for Israel to be set free. Now understand, originally the Passover was supposed to celebrate their exodus out of Egypt and ultimately their entrance into the Promised Land. Today it's only the exodus out of Egypt, for what it's worth. Well, here's the way that it works in a Haggadah of the Gospel of John. The first thing that happens is what's called the Kara. Try Kara. Kara means the calling. Because the first thing you want to do is you want to invite people to your house. It is, in essence, now it's interesting because John does address things from a Greek perspective in this. In the beginning was the word, that's logic, logos. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And then he gives from that word to a light, the light. John bore witness of the light. He wasn't the light, but the true light was coming into the world. And that light was the life of men. And we get this idea that the three terms he uses, if you realize it, is the logos, the light, and the life in the beginning of it. Those are very, very Greek terms. But, the word is going out. The word is going to be incarnate. And the idea, and it's like, that's the whole idea because 430 years before that, God had given a promise in his word that had to be incarnate for them to be delivered. There's the beginning of it. And there has to be light because every ceremony takes place starting with the lighting of lights. We'll talk about that in a bit here. And then third, the whole idea of this is that the bondage was no life at all, but God delivered them not only out of the land of slavery, but also into the promised land, and that's where the life happens. And so there is this beginning promise in our epilogue, if you will. Then from that, we get this. John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and then, that's, if you will, the invitation. The same way that the kara, the calling out to the people, from which then Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel follow Jesus. That's chapter 1. That's our kata. Chapter 2, what happens next? Two things, so try this with me. Koshiva. Kosh means cup. Koshiva, and now try this. Yayin. Same word today. Uh, I mean, you could say for, for, for what's worth, terosh, but yayin means wine. Matter of fact, how would you say wine in Finnish? Vin. Vin, how about in Hungarian? Bor. Okay, forget that. Uh, <laughs> French. Vin. Vin, okay. Italian? Vino. Vino. How about Portuguese? Vino. Vino. How about in Caribbean? <laughs> Coconut. <laughs> Daniel, can't you say anything? And <laughs> Are you sure you're really Caribbean? It's wine, man. It's wine. <laughs> Did you have it? Red wine, man. Uh, sorry. Can you help me? Anything else, ladies? Morisi. Morisi. Yeah. In almost every romantic language, it's vin, vino, yin, those kind of things. Middle Eastern and Semitic languages, it's the same thing. Ya yin, yin is the idea here. And the reason I say that is, is that the two things you do, the first, by the way, for what it's worth, is this koshiva. Kos means cup. Shiva means covenant. 
that'll happen twice. And the second thing is a thing called chemetz. Try that. Chemetz. So, koshiva, if you will, is the cup of covenant. And then the first one would be, in essence, a cup of promise. The second is the covenant. And then the other thing, chemetz, means yeast or uh, leaven. Now, in order for your house to and understand, we're not even having the celebration yet. <coughs> but we are preparing the wine, the yayin, because we want the wine and we actually mix it. Because the idea of it is not for anybody to get hosed. The idea of it is for people to have this cup and it's supposed to mean something. But also, you cannot have Passover in your house with any yeast in your house whatsoever. So you, you can't just remove it. You drive it out is the term that is there. To the point where to this day, the ultra-Orthodox take a feather and bring that feather through their whole house and then brush it across their threshold to make sure that even the smallest hint of leaven would be driven out of their house. So what takes place in chapter 2? Jesus turns water to wine. And I go, well, that makes perfect sense to me from a Haggadah because that's what you have to do next. But what else do you have to do? You have to drive out the leaven. So what else takes place in chapter 2? Jesus drives out the money changers and those that are selling in the temple. Perfect for it. Now, for what it's worth, if you look at your pages, and this is to kind of help you for later as well, Notice there are two colors that are kind of reverse image here, if you will. They're texts. You see the black ones here, and on the back side you'll see black and sort of purpley. Do you see that? <coughs> well, for what it's worth, there are seven miracles, in essence, recorded before Jesus' resurrection, and seven distinct I am statements. Consider the black, the miracles, Consider the purple, like royalty, the I am statements. Does that make sense? So in chapter 2, we have one black one. What would that one be? What was the miracle? Water to wine. Exactly. By the way, for what it's worth, do you remember where he did that? What was the event he did that at? A wedding. That is so important. Because what God wanted to do was get back to the romance that was clearly missing. So, the two things again. The Chavshavet, in other words, our, our wine or the cup of covenant. The second is chametz or our leaven. Are you guys following me on this so far? Okay. Chapters 3 and 4, we have another term. So try this with me. Kerov v'rachok. So, first word, kerov which means and. Rachok. Yeah, like bach. Rachok. Rachok, by the way, karav means near, va means am, rachok means far. Remember when the man was having his feast, and he invited people, but they wouldn't come, and then he said he sent them near and far. And the idea of it is, you don't just invite close family, but you're going to invite distant relatives as well. If you are in a well-to-do position, it was your responsibility to try to get family members who were less financially stable into your house. So they had this particular term, and the idea was you wanted to make sure that you reached your family near and far. Interesting, in those chapters, two distinct people show up. A man named Nicodemus, I would venture to call him Charov, and then a Samaritan woman, and that would be a rachuk. That would be far. Samaritans, I remind you, were half-breeds. 
they will, well, pardon me for saying, they were mixed race. They were initially Jewish, but when the Assyrians had taken Israel, the northern area, captive in 721-722 BC, they deported most of, it, of Israelites out, left a handful of others, but then brought in a bunch of people from elsewhere that they had captured and brought them in, and those people had children. But there was much more than just that they were, you know, as far as uh, in their DNA, they were kind of mixed race. But it was also that during that time, people were getting mauled by wild animals, and the Assyrians were saying, we need to stop this. Their God is angry. How do we do that? And they brought in priests to teach them how to do the ceremonies of the Jews to placate the God of the Jews so they wouldn't get killed anymore. So the people were doing the same rituals, in essence, but they were doing it for the opposite reason. We, they were doing it to keep God away, like the rest of the world and their religion, versus the Jews who were celebrating God because he's near. So anyways, so they were, there was more than just, well, you're not as dark as me, or you're not as Italian as me, or, you know, whatever. The idea of it here is, you know, that you were not, you were, you were not just mixed breed, you know, physically, you were mixed breed spiritually, and that was the real problem. Well, with that in mind, Jesus, of course, as we have the near and far, we have both. But interesting, in that, we have our second miracle. And that second miracle is an interesting thing, because in John 4, 46-54, it is a nobleman, who, by the way, we recognize later to be Yeros. He is, you know, he is a, um, actually it may not be, because of this particular person, Jesus doesn't go with him. This particular person comes solely for the healing of his son. As he comes solely for the healing of his son, Jesus says something, he says, go your way, your son lives. And we never read the man returning. And I find that interesting in the midst of this, that there are people being invited that are near like Nicodemus and far like the Samaritan woman. But this man, on the other hand, goes solely for a healing and has no reason to come back after that. In other words, Jesus was a means to an end. But he wasn't taking the invitation. I think it's an interesting thing to throw into the middle of this. Which takes us to chapter 5. In chapter 5, by the way, one of the things we have at our particular uh, Passover is something called Manishtana. Manishtana, in essence, is a handful of questions children are to ask to help facilitate the Seder or the story, to tell the story of the Exodus and their deliverance. Interesting, the point that goes back to Deuteronomy 19.15, where the idea is that they need to establish what's called an Eid. An Eid, by the way, is a witness, a set of, a collection of witnesses. Because in Deuteronomy, it tells us that if you're going to establish a matter, you need more than one witness to establish it. So having these kids ask these questions allowed them to partake in the situation, but also allowed them to be witness to the answer. Now, while that's the case, something radical takes place. Because Jesus will stand up, and what you have to show is that the law could not deliver you out of Egypt. But instead of the law delivering you, God had to deliver you by his grace. Because the law was not given until they were in the wilderness. That becomes a key point. So this is the story he sets it up with. And you could easily miss it. In John 5, we know of the next situation was a man that was lame. He was ill in some manner, and he couldn't get himself up for the stirring of the water, because if the, when the water was stirred, the strongest would be able to get there first, not the weakest. In other words, those with the greatest need were at the greatest deficit and least likely to get help. But what he makes really clear in that 
is that the place that he was at was called the house of mercy, Bethesda. Bethesda is that it was it had five distinct porches for where these men would lay. Now John didn't have to tell us that. Why five? Well, what's so unique or important about the number five to the Jewish people? Five is the number of books in the Torah for which their law comes. And this man was incapable of getting healing on his own, so God had to come to him. Now, interesting, because then the next thing that happens is Jesus gives testimony of himself, and guess how many witnesses he gives for himself? Five. And he'll say, by the way, for what it's worth, as he brings that to the line, he goes, John, you asked about John, John testified of me, because the very works I do, they testify of me. The Father himself testified of me. You search the scriptures, thinking by them you possess eternal life, but they are the ones who testify of me. And then he says, and you think that, don't think that, that I'll condemn you on that day. You, you rely on Moses, Moses will condemn you because he testified of me. That's five witnesses. There were five porches that this man was incapable of getting healing on, but Jesus gives five testimony. And it's interesting because the next thing we get is we prepare the Manishtana, we prepare the witnesses. And the witnesses are supposed to tell us that this has to be God's grace. Now, are you with me so far? That takes us good. I, I'm seeing the nodding slightly. So the miracle The miracle shows us Oh, the man healed at the pool of Bethesda. Sure. Yeah, good question. I'm sure you said it. I just was writing down about the five minutes. Sure. In the testimony of God delivering his people, we will have to see God's tremendous provision in the wilderness. Let me say this. Of all the greatest things that God did from the moment they left Egypt to the moment they entered the Promised Land, what would you say would be the two greatest <coughs> miracles? I would say fantastic. Yeah, there was a water they could not cross, but instead, God gave them a way to get through. He parted the water and they walked through. How about providing them so they could stay alive? Mm-hmm. And what was that? Yeah, excellent, the manna and the water. Now, interesting, because the next thing we start to do is we prepare the lamech, the bread, the matzah. And as we prepare that, we're preparing for that story. Because the bread testifies. It has to be leavenless, because they had to leave in a hurry, but it's going to foretell them that God is going to provide them bread that came down from heaven, rained down from heaven, if you will, like dew, every day while they're in the wilderness. Interesting, because in chapter 6 and 7, we have our next two miracles. The first, John 6, 1-14, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And then as a result of that, he gives us his testimony in John six forty eight, and he says, I am the bread of life. He actually says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. But then there's one other issue we have to deal with. He has one more miracle. And that miracle is in John 6.15 and that is Jesus. His disciples are on a boat and they're freaking out because they think they're going to die. The water is, get this, what becomes clear in the Gospel of John is they cannot cross through the water. So what does Jesus do? He walks on it. 
And it makes sense to me because we're preparing to show how God walked us through an uncrossable water barrier. Now we actually are at this ceremony. And as we're at the ceremony, we've gotten the people have been invited. We've prepared our wine. We've prepared our bread. You know, we've prepared our story. We've now picked our witnesses who are going to ask the questions. We've gotten everything kind of ready. You know, now with that, what do we do now? The first way to start the ceremony always has to be the same thing. We'll do the same thing here. And that is that you have to have the woman, the oldest woman in the house. So I'm hoping that Marcia will come. Because everybody here is so darn young. It just keeps my wife from, you know. Um, Because I think, right, Deborah, Anna, Maureen, you guys aren't older. Okay. Uh, Daniel is, but he's not a woman. Uh, She has to do what is called the Chai Or. Chai means life. So it's Chai Chai. And by the way, you will see that people from Israel often wear it as a necklace. It looks like a staple in an apostrophe. Well, that sounds really crude, but that's basically what it looks like. It's like one big staple, and the one, and that's the two letters, the chit and the yab. And they say there's chi. And it means life. Or, by the way, means light. Yaraor means like when God said, let there be light. Literally, light be. And light was. To this day, if you were to say good morning in Israel, you could say it two different ways. You can say boker tov. Boker means morning. Tov means good. Boker tov. Or you could say boker or, which means morning light. It's kind of the difference between saying thank you and cheers, if that makes sense. I'm still a big thank you guy. Still not. I mean, I can understand saying cheers for someone you're paying to do something, and then they're looking for a tip. Cheers is good for me there. But for someone who does something that like is not expected, I'd like to say thank you. And so, Bokram Tov is like, hey, good morning. Bokram is like, hey, morning light. Anyway, so Chayur means the light of life. And the idea of it is, is that we know that the Messiah has to come from a woman. We get that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, 16, 17. And so, get that. So that's why the woman lights the candles. Interesting, because in this, Jesus does a miracle and makes an exclamation about himself. The exclamation he makes about himself in 9.5 uh, is that he is the light of the world. Makes sense, doesn't it? So what does Jesus do to prove that he is the light of the world? He takes a man who has never seen light and heals him. A man born blind. But do you know that was not the first context to Jesus' statement? It wasn't like he healed a man born blind. He goes, oh, by the way, now that you see that, I'm the light of the world. An event took place before that. And I would call it a miracle. It's just not a miracle the way that scientists would call a miracle. In John chapter 8, a woman was caught in adultery. Thrust at Jesus more than likely half-naked because she was caught in the very act, though the man was never brought, and both were to be brought in stone, but for whatever reason, only the woman tells us the people bringing them obviously were more interested in nailing Jesus than they were in really performing justice. And they throw her before Jesus, and of course they say, well, the law says 
that, you know, anyone who does this should be stoned. What do you say? Now, I, I want you to realize how important that is. Because what the, the enemies of Jesus realized is that he was compassionate and loving to the sinner, but he hated the sin and he was going to stand on the word. He was not going to bend the word to love the person and he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to compromise his love for people to stand on the word. And so they, all they had to do was find something that would trap him by making him have to choose a side. And my question is, could people see that in us? Could they see us as someone that they knew that if we had to stand on the word, it would hurt us when we, because of our love for people, but on the other side of it, that they knew that we had such a love for the word that we wouldn't compromise that either way. They think they could trap us. Because to be honest, it is, I say, because it tells us in John 1, that though the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's our balance. So Jesus ultimately would say, as you're probably aware, he kneels down, writes in the sand, and everyone wants to tell you what he wrote in the sand, but God doesn't, so it must not be the issue. And ultimately it slows the pace down, they keep pushing him, and he finally says, all right, I'll tell you what, go ahead and throw your stones, but make sure that you're sinless first. Well, that's a loose purpose. But he who has no sin, cast the first stone. And we read from the oldest to the youngest, they drop their stones and walk away. They're going to save those stones, by the way, because they're going to try to actually, for what it's worth, it won't be towards the end of the same chapter. They're going to just pick them up to throw at Jesus. But, so they've continued to have them around. But then Jesus looks at the woman and he says, Has anyone condemned you? He goes, No, sir, no one. He goes, Well, then neither do I. Go and say no more. And then he turns and says, I'm the light of the world. And I love that's the context first. Then, he goes, you really want to see it lived out? And then he heals a man born blind. So, that's the sandwich for which the meat is, I'm the light of the world. Beautiful, beautiful text. Alright, chapter 10. What's the next thing we have to do? Seth, we have to pick our lamb. What happens in chapter 10? Jesus makes two profound statements. John 10, 7, I'm the door to the sheep. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. Now we prepare in chapter 11 for the Magid. Magid, or the Seder, the story, where the whole point of it is how God gave birth, brought life to a nation that was in bondage in the crucible of Egypt. And the idea of it was raising them from the dead. Now we have this term, by the way, and you've heard me say it a couple of times now, Ketsapo Me'ud Sham. Ketsapo means a little here. Me'ud Sham means a lot later or more there. And the idea of it is that a hint of something is performed now to give us a, an idea of the greater fulfillment of it later. For instance, was Hitler the Antichrist? No. Was Hitler an Antichrist? Absolutely. Was Nero an Antichrist? Sure. And I would say for both guys. Now, there are people that are like, well, I think that the prophecies Jesus made about the end of the world were fulfilled in AD 70 at the destruction of the temple. I'm like, interesting. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. Not getting there. Memory, no more memory of sin. Nah, I don't really get that. But I do get this. I do see that there's a, there's a hint of it there but it isn't this complete fulfillment. The same way that if you're still single 
or like I'll just use Sudan's example, there have been several guys and they were kind of cool and they were hints of something really cool, but when Mr. Awesome came into her life, she ditched him and married me. Anyway, so <laughs> so what does Jesus do as a result of that? John eleven twenty five, he makes the statement, I am the resurrection and the life. God resurrected a nation and gave them life by taking them out of Egypt. Beautiful thing. And then how does he prove it? John 11, verses 1 to 16, he raises Lazarus from the dead. I think I missed what McGee didn't say to me. Yeah, this story. No, no problem. I'm glad you asked. Further oil is prepared. And this further oil is prepared because the, for each one of us, but the person who leads the ceremony from this point, now that the lights are lit and the story is prepared to be told, that person is anointed to tell the story. And in the same way, in John 12 to 1 7, Jesus is anointed prior to his crucifixion. And we prepare that for the light as well as we further add oil to the oil lamps. For them to stay burning bright, obviously you're going to need that to tell the story. And Jesus says in 1246, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me would not walk in darkness. And now we prepare for our food portions. Shemen. Shemen means oil. The oil. Yeah, please feel free to ask. Chapter 13. The achatz. The achatz is the washing. And we have to wash our hands because we're about to dip. And we can't dip with dirty hands. When that happens, we're about to dip the moror. The moror is the bitter herbs. It's the one thing you might not ask for moror of. <laughs> Thank you, honey. And we are dipping to identify the bitterness of our sin and slavery. God never wants us to look back at Egypt and go out and think, wouldn't that be great if we did that again? Interesting. Because the two things Jesus does, first of all, is he washes his disciples' feet. That makes sense to me. Because he is performing a chut. And then what happens after he does that? He tells John at Peter's asking, it is he to whom I shall dip this piece of bread in hand to. Jesus is going to dip <coughs> the bread into the bitter herbs to remind you this is the bitterness of slavery and hand it to Judas. And that's where we would do that, but we wouldn't be handing it to someone else. We would be reminded of how horrible it is to be a slave. And Jesus is like, oh boy, you are such a slave, you don't even know it. Chapter 14 God walks us through a bit of the exodus, the way out and the way into the promised land for which Jesus would declare in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Interesting, because then the next thing we would be brought to is a revision of the Ten Commandments. As we are now back, and by the way, the word for that mitzvah means commandments. 
And as we walk through those commandments, they're basically, if you think about it, two basic stands. The first four, uh, for what it's worth, um, are, you know, no, it's, you know, only one God, no idols, keep God's name holy, and the Sabbath are clinging to God. Then the second half of that, by the way, <clears throat> you know, the whole honoring your parents, no murdering, no adultery, stealing, false witness, or coveting is about loving your neighbor. This is why Jesus will tell us that it all breaks down into two things, loving God, and then with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. Interesting. In this chapter, Jesus tells us in John 15, 5, his next declaration of himself, I'm the vine. You're the branches. You abide in me, you'll bear fruit. Without me, you can't do anything. It's interesting. During this time, we're also dipping again. We're dipping the carpas, which is the vegetable, or the herb, and the idea of in, um, in salt water, because we're reminded of the tears of that time. But we're also reminded that there's fruitfulness in all of that. And Jesus is showing us this. But you know what's interesting? He doesn't stop with the first four commandments. He also gives us a second portion. When he tells us in John 15, 12 and 17, this is my commandment. Love one another. Even as I have loved you. And what we get is, cling to Jesus and love, love each other like, you love, like, like Jesus has loved us. And there it is, the revision of the commandments. Finally, chapter 17, the next thing we do is the tefillah. Can you say tefillah? Because I haven't had you say these in a while, I'm sorry. Tefillah. Tefillah. Thank you. Yeah, is the stuff you put on pans to keep things from sticking. No, that's Teflon. Sorry. I always wondered about that. How do you get Teflon to stick to a pan if nothing sticks to Teflon? Anyway, all right. Tefillah means... Yeah, it's horrible, right? Tefillah means... The prayer. Because what we're going to the things that are left is we have the prayer, we have the slaughter, we have the lamb, we declare God's victory, and then we renew our covenant. And that's interesting because that's exactly what's going to take place. Jesus in chapter 17 is praying, but it's a different prayer recorded than the other three gospels. In the other three gospels, when Jesus is in the garden, what is he praying? Yeah, if there's any other way, remove this cup. That is not mentioned here because. This cup is a cup that's important to be drunk. It's clear it's part of this. But instead, the prayer is, my prayer is that they would be born even as you and I are one. And he gives us this. I, you and me, I and you, that they would be in me and I in them. And that, of course, starts to sound like some kind of weird New Age song after a while. But let me just make it clear. So just consider this. Let me use Shantae as an example. Although we would probably work just as easy. But if I were to send Shantae somewhere, for instance, I could probably even at this point, if I really needed to, send Tay the week she's going to be here, Easter week, the one week that it's going to be crazy busy here, uh, to a place like Pho. And I might be able to send her a place like that and say, you know, could you tell John that I'll come in later on in the day and I'll pay him. Or I could pay a call, pay on the phone, send her to pick up the food. Although it's Tay, so who really thinks she'd go? But uh, but the idea she might, you know. But the idea is that um, she would be coming in my name. In other words, you know, she's in me in that. So I'm the one responsible for it. I give her what is necessary for her to accomplish that. Paid for it the whole bit. All she needs to do is pick it up, and it's hers. You know. Now, I mean, it might be in a case like that. I could simply be like, I'm just buying her a meal. It's waiting for all she needs to do is go and get it. It's all been taken care of. She's coming in my name, so because she's coming in me, she gets all of those benefits and the fortitude of that. Does that make sense? But on the other side of it, let's say at a moment where Tay begins to do something 
really, really cool. Or to be honest, let me say it in this way. Suzanne can make that call. Same thing happens. But then you see Tay and you're like, wow, she's so beautiful. And you're like, you know why? Because I see your mom in you, Tay. And with that, that is Suzanne in Tay now. Where the idea of it now is you see the qualities of Suzanne in Tay. So in one case, Tay is in Suzanne where she's experiencing the benefits and the provision of Suzanne. In the other case, you see Suzanne in her, so you see the qualities of Suzanne in Tay. And the same thing when Jesus says, that's what I want for these people. I want them to be in me so that we would receive all of the benefits of Jesus, but he wants to be in us so that in essence, the very character and quality of Jesus would be then exuded to us. There's the idea of the prayer. So that's our tefillah, for what it's worth. And what does tefillah mean again? Prayer. Prayer. Excellent. So then what we do next? To the slaughtering and partaking of the lamb. And to the victory of the exodus. And I remind you, Lazarus was our reminder, like he was the hint of the fact that victory was in the resurrection. And then finally, chapter 21, after Jesus is resurrected, the last thing we have to do now there's a Kiddush Vishavah. Kiddush is the blessing. Shiva means covenant, so it's the blessing of the covenant or the covenant of blessing where we renew our covenant with God. Now, how does that happen there? What happens in chapter 21? Jesus reinstates Peter. But he doesn't reinstate Peter by saying, Peter, are you going to obey me this time? Peter, are you not going to sin this time? He asks Peter a question thrice. Do you remember the question he asks him in chapter 21? Do you love me? Do you love me? This is what it's going to be about, Peter. It's going to be about us. And John uniquely records that, including uniquely records the part where Peter says, what about this guy? Who's the this guy he's talking about? Oh yeah, that's John. So by the time we're done, so follow me on this and I'll do it quick now. There's the calling, and with the calling, the early disciples start to follow Jesus. Then, if you will, there's the preparation of the wine and the chemetz, the yain and the chemetz. Jesus turns water into wine, he clears the temple. Then, you know, there's the calling, the charad, the calling near and far, for which then you have Naz, uh, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Uh, in the middle of all of that, there's an interesting story of a nobleman who gets the healing but doesn't follow Jesus as a result. Uh, ultimately, at least we have no record of it. Then the Manishtana, the preparation of the witnesses, the Aid. Uh, and with the Aid, then what do we have? Jesus, uh, first of all, calls the man up, heals the man that's on the five porches of Bethesda, the house of mercy, and then gives the five testimonies of himself. <laughs> that's a good joke. Hey, no, that's not a joke. All right. Then we have the bread prepared, the Lamech, the Matzah. Uh, from which, of course, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and calls himself the bread of life, walking on the sea, showing us again the walking through water, if you will. Then we have the chayor, the light of life. Jesus calls himself the light of the world and heals a man born blind. Then we pick our lamb, our seh, uh, and with that he calls himself the door to the sheep and the good shepherd. Those are the two terms he uses. They're the door to the sheep, that's how you get to the sheep, and the good shepherd, because ultimately the sheep will not have to be sacrificed because the shepherd himself gives his life. Then the Magid, the story for which Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and again, Lazarus is raised to prove it. And then we have the oil prepared. Again, the amen, uh, it's the shimen, and with shimen then, uh, Jesus is anointed and tells us he's come as the light into the world. Then we have the orchats, the washing, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples 
And then we have the dipping of the mortar for which he hands to Judas Iscariot. And we have the derek, the way is what that means again, the way of the exodus for which he tells us he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. Then we have the mitzvahot, the review of the covenant of the commandments, and the karpas for which Jesus called himself the true vine in 15.5. And then reviews that with also saying that we are to love one another. That's how people are really going to know who we really are uh, as his disciples. Chapter 17 walks us to the tefillah. That's the prayer. Then there's the slaughtering of the lamb. That's Jesus arrested and murdered and the victory of the resurrection. And then ultimately the Kadesh of Ishaba, the, the uh, blessing of the covenant or the covenant of blessing where he renews his covenant and restores Peter. And that's our entire book. And I realized there wasn't a part of it that John departed from the Haggadah. In it. And I'm, I'm in shock of how beautiful that is as we walk through it. Now, kind of right on time for the moment, and I'm really excited about that. So this is what I want to do. Are there any questions in regards to this before we, uh, before we go to prayer and, and take a break? The Haggadah. Haggadah, in essence, is the DIY Passover for Dummies. It's the how-to book, if you want. In a little list of order. Uh, because in a moment here, you, you know, we have uh, a lemon tart, a Sicilian lemon tart, and we have a salted caramel chocolate tart. And, and I think there's some grapes. And, <laughs> and sure. Uh, all right. <laughs> hey, I want you to know, I love being able to go through this, but, you know, it's like one of the things I do even after all of this is I want to read. I know that I've got the Book of Acts to read, for instance, uh, but I want to read to John one more time just to kind of sift through that one more time and then go on to the Book of Acts. But anyways, uh, yes. When we were reading the Gospels, the parts where they say the Jews, then they say um, the, the Judeans, then some they say the, the Pharisees. What is that distinction there? And yet if I'm to think of it, it's all the Israelites. So what is oh. all that distinction of each of these people trying? When Israel came back after their captivity, it was almost impossible for a lot of them to be able to even prove their... Uh, I mean, they did. Many of them still tried to. They, you know, they tried to prove their, uh, their tribal allotments because each person had land rights by their family. Uh, but ultimately, what you find is by the time Rome takes over, they were all called Jews. Jew, by the way, comes from only one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah. Uh, that's where we get the term Jew. It was, in essence, a cheapening of the word. Uh, but... In John, where it's all empty, because he's the only one who really calls them that primarily other than king of the Jews. Which clearly means that the Greeks and the Romans were calling them Jews. That's what they were calling them. That's why you would call them king of the Jews. Uh, versus king of the Israelites. Or, you know. Now, when you think about Nathaniel, who Jesus addresses in John 1, where he says, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathaniel doesn't call him king of the Jews. He says, you are the king of Israel. And Israelite would still call themselves Israelites. But the rest of the world call them Jews. Rome's, Rome was a prime example of that. Now, amidst that group of people, there were those that lived in different territories. Those that lived up north in the area of Galilee were called Galileans. They were Jews from Galilee. Those that lived in the area of Judea were called Judeans. Now, they were Jews who lived in Judea. The same way that we, uh, although this is a really fun group to say that, we're not all Brits here at the moment. Uh, we're almost Brits. We're, like, you know, we're bits. Brits 
in training. But uh, we're, but we're all Londoners. Are you closer to Gatwick or to the center of the city? Oh. Yeah. No, I'm closer to Cinnamon. Cinnamon? <laughs> You're closer to Cinnamon? <laughs> okay. No. Oh, okay. Well, here's the point. Again, you know, it's like, but, you know, you know, the same way, let's say we really all were British uh, because this was okay. Brexit. We better be now. But, um, but with that, we're all Londoners, too. Versus Yorkies or, you know, um, you know. Vancurians. Vancurians? Vancurians. Vancurians. Oh, Mancurians. Is that what they're called? Mancurians? Wow. Okay. Mancurians or, you know, she's a sit Scott in training. Uh, <laughs> you know. So anyways, yeah, but so that's kind of the idea. Now, in regards <coughs> to political parties, you could say that you might say here that you might be a conservative or maybe a labor, I don't know what you call it, a labor. I mean, but you know, like where you kind of have these sort of affiliations politically. Well, there were political affiliations there too, the Sadducees and the Pharisees for the most part. Though they were theologies, they were still in essence the political parties of the day. So they were actually, to say you were a Pharisee though, you were actually a leader among that group of people. It wasn't just like you kind of believed in their teachings you would be considered a disciple of that. So they were, in essence, like... I mean, we might say it this way, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. They were those people. And that's fair, actually a fair representation. <clears throat> but John really emphasizes not those... He spends less time on those political parties. and spends, Like, remember how Matthew, as the king, he goes after the scribes and Pharisees. He goes after their throat. But John more kind of goes over the mass of people as the Jews. And he says, this, these things were supposed to be, God wanted to be intimate with people, but the Jews had just made it their own thing. You know? So that's kind of a good question. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, let's pray. Uh, the time, at this moment, is 7.43, and we'll kick in right at 8 sharp. And I need you to kick in right at 8 sharp, because we've got a test to do. Actually, let's do it 5 till. Can we do that? So, um, that's more than 10 minutes for you to have one of the two tarts. <laughs> or grace. <laughs> Lord, I want to thank you so much for being the Lamb of God that slain. And I recognize, even when John would see you in heaven, though heaven would see you as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, that John would still see you as the Lamb that had been slaughtered. And then John would still recognize you by your scars. And I'm so thankful for that. And I just want to thank you for being the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This was never a plan B. And that the two things was that either the lamb would be slain so the people and covered their house, or the firstborn son would die. And Jesus, you became both to give us absolute and total payment without beyond a, beyond a shadow of a doubt that all bases could possibly be covered. And the fact that you would call yourself begotten, the only begotten, that we would recognize that you would be the firstborn. Not just of Joseph and Mary, but of the Father. And with that, we just want to thank you and just thank you for setting us free. We do believe you. 
And we do believe in you. We put our trust in you. And in that, Lord, let us walk in that light and life and love that you would call us to. So we're yours in Jesus, in your name. Amen. Side note, if you talk to those people that I want to say who they're a group of people and they like the witness of Jehovah, that um, they don't believe that Jesus is God, and one of the reasons they use is begotten. They use that term. Well, begotten means made. It doesn't mean made. Begotten, and it's, and it's never just begotten, it's only begotten. Mono, meaning one. Begotten is the word genes. Like we get the word generation, gene pool, genital. They all come from that same word. Monogenes means Jesus is the only one from the Father's gene pool. We might say it this way. He's the only one of the Father's species. To say that Jesus is the only begotten actually says that Jesus has to be God. Because he has to be whatever the Father is, Jesus is. There's the point. So we are born again. But he is only begotten. So when someone says, well, begotten means made, I'm like, oh. You're actually, that's wonkier than you think. Acts. You have, did I give you one? I have not. Um, If you remember, it's written by Luke, by the way. Same guy as, obviously, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and it's the recipient is the same. As a matter of fact, he says in the former account of Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Now, what he tells us is the Gospel of Luke was the former account that he, where Jesus began to do and teach. Which leads me to believe this is what Jesus continued to do and teach. It's kind of the idea. You know, uh, Jesus will, um, we have a timestamp. The beginning of it is with Jesus' ascension. That's 33, 34 AD on the Mount of Olives. Uh, and it ends with Paul's first Roman house arrest, imprisonment. That's 60 to 62 AD in Rome. Which means basically we're doing about 30 years. The whole book of Acts lasts about 30 years. Gives us a timestamp there. Because now we're in a whole new thing. From this point on, everything's going to be brand new. We're not reviewing anything in that sense. We're looking at you know, the, the, the intricacies between one book and another. Um, we're now looking at every book's going to be brand new in that sense. So, uh, that's our timestamp. It's pivotal in three very distinct ways. One is the focus. It's, it starts with the 12 apostles, of course. Uh, well, the 12, because there's a guy that has to replace Judas. Ultimately, it will pivot from that to one guy, specifically Peter, and then ultimately that will pivot from Peter to Paul uh, through the most of the book by chapter 13. Uh, It pivots from focal points of Jerusalem to Antioch, which is 200 miles north in Syria, by the way, a place that's a bit of a hot spot right now. And then ultimately, it goes on tour. I mean, basically, what you're going to find by chapter 14 is that the camera crew better have wheels, because they're going everywhere. They better have their passports. Uh, The ministry model becomes different. It goes originally from, if you will, ministry-centric, in other words, uh, central focal point, Uh, like kind of we would say, if you build it, they will come, where it was the temple in the beginning. That was sort of the beginning, was Jerusalem. And it goes from that to missional. So it goes from centric, where everything kind of has a center point, Commission or where everything now is being, if you will, on locale. It's constantly moving. The structure comes, by the way, uh, from chapter 1. Jesus, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times and seasons the Father has put under his own authority. 
But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In essence, this becomes the structure of the book. Jerusalem chapters 1-7, through seven, that's the emphasis. Ultimately, I want to remind you, apostle means sent out one. And it becomes kind of the funny part that the sent out ones are the ones staying. And then God says, well, then let's send someone else out. And that becomes Paul, ultimately. But chapters 1 to 7, the focal point is Jerusalem. Chapter 8, the focal point then is Judea and Samaria, ultimately. And then ultimately we meet Paul in 9, and we start to see the end of the earth, you know, in regards to the ministry of the gospel going forth. So, now we're not looking at it from the standpoint of Jesus and his presentation at a particular place, for instance, where... You know, it's sort of like the king on the hill, or the servant to the masses, or the man at the, at the table, or, if you will, the son of God at the Passover. But now we're actually saying, well, here's our structure. Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, and that's what we're kind of looking at. Now, Jerusalem, I remind you, is a city, and as Jerusalem is a city, it sits within, uh, a, it sits within a borough, if you will. You know, we would say it this way, perhaps. We'd say Greenwich is a city. Well, it's really, it's, you know, it's a community. It's, a, it's you know, however you want to put that. Uh, it's a village. But it sits within Greenwich Borough. And Jerusalem's a city, and if you will, sits within Judea. And then from that, it has a competing, if you will, a sort of a rival area. And I remind you, the Samaritans, like we saw with the woman at the well, um, that would be, it would be a huge step to go from somebody that was purebred Jew, not only in bloodline, but also in, if you will, in your idea of theological practice, to your half-breed, uh, you know, mixed race, not only from Jewish race, but also in religious practice of the Samaritans. That's a huge step. As a matter of fact, there had been debate in Jesus' is dead, all depends on whether you were in Hillel or Shammai, which camp, on whether the Samaritans even had a chance to be saved. Allah would be more likely to say it's possible because there's still some Jewish blood in them. And he would emphasize, for instance, the ten men that God would have saved Sodom and Gomorrah for. That's where Shammai was like, but they're not pure because they're not pure. Because, which, by the way, is kind of an interesting jab at Hillel, who wasn't born in Israel. He was born in Babylon, though he was Jewish. So, anyway, so there's that kind of argument. But... That has to be, and hear me on that, that has to be gateway because the end of the earth were not the Jews scattered all over the world. It was everybody. And praise God for that because as I look around the room here, we wouldn't have stood a chance if they hadn't gotten to the Samaritans first, if that makes sense. Because the Samaritans at least said, in essence, it was one part Jew, but it was also one part something else. And we became the something else part. They were That was the gateway. So... That becomes the structure, that the wisdom of God. And for each of us, there will be a Jerusalem, the area that's sort of our epicenter, for which then we'll go from this thing to, to spreading out to something that's still basically within our comfort zone to some degree. It's just more extended to a place that's a lot more janky to us, to the place ultimately where we reach out to the end of the earth. But we tend not to go to the end of the earth without actually seeing these things start to grow. So that becomes the book. Now, I want to recognize when we do, when I teach through it next week, I'm going to give you maps and things to help us, for instance, on Paul's journeys, things that just kind of help put it into order. But I want you to take special note of the books of the Bible. For instance, you have Rome for Romans, 
Then you have Corinth for the Corinthians. Then Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, and Thessalonica. Those places that books are written to. Keep your eye on those places as you go through. And in essence, when you go through the book of Acts, just mark those places where you're kind of like, oh, that's one of the books. Because at least what you'll have from this point on is a history, a historical account of any information you might have about that place that Paul might have been to. Because for all of them other than Colossae and Rome, Paul hadn't been to uh, until the end of the book of Acts, Paul will wind up in Rome. Uh, <clears throat> so that is kind of, that's just kind of key. When we teach it as, when I used to teach it as a class in Acts, because I love the book of Acts for that, we would write every person you meet in the book of Acts, and there are a lot. And then every place that was there in the book of Acts and what took place. And it becomes its own encyclopedia, but it is such a helpful book of information. Because you're like, when you're referring back, wait a minute, Timothy, how much do I have on Timothy? Or, well, wait a minute, Silas, wait a minute, oh, wait a minute, he was actually a key player for a while. Barnabas, okay, I kind of get that guy. I mean, it's amazing how some of these characters, Trophimus, who cares about Trophimus? Well, Trophimus became, in essence, a hot spot because he was the person, ultimately, that they said Paul had dragged into the temple who wasn't Jewish, and that was why they tried to kill him, but they tried to use this. I mean, it's amazing how these characters, and all of it to say, it all depends on how deep you want to go, but as you read through this beautiful book, get the feel for that. Get the feel for the idea of Okay, we've got this church. Jesus is now ascended. Now what in the heck do we do? There's kind of our idea. All right. Does that make sense?